We are uh, talking this morning about uh, one little phrase, a phrase called community of missionaries. And we're going to talk about a little bit of what that looks like. We said that we're starting on this series where we're looking at the life of Jesus. And we looked at Jesus through the lens of money for the last four weeks. And I think it was really challenging, I, mean, I know to me personally, but to us in general, to, to really live into generosity. And as we move forward, we, we talked a couple weeks ago about the idea that we want to talk about how Jesus' mission intersects with the mission of new community. Or that our mission, what we believe we as a community are trying to live into, uh, is intricately woven into what we believe Jesus was doing with his life what he was inspiring us to do. And so, as disciples of Jesus, right, if our job is to follow the teachings and the way of Jesus, then we want to figure out what does that look like for us corporately, what does that look for, like for us in small groups, what does that look like for us individually, right? So, <clears throat> we decided we would look, excuse me, <clears throat> at this idea for the next couple of weeks. And uh, we're doing it off of kind of our mission statement. So those of you that uh, memorize it, which is probably like none of you, here, here's what the mission statement says. It's a, we, New Community, is an urban-focused, small group-driven community of missionaries that wholeheartedly worships God, unconditionally loves all people, and boldly lives out and extends the gospel of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. I'm thinking we should shorten it. But um, it, that's my first thought, okay? Um, <laughs> This is this has been around for a long time. This, but here's here's what stood out to me as I read through it again. Right, uh, urban focused and small group driven is describing a few little like defining characteristics of the more important phrase, which is community of missionaries. Then the last section speaks to how this community of missionaries is called to live. Right, they're, they're called to. Uh, to worship God, to love people, and to be on mission. That's really what it's saying. But the core of the whole statement really comes down to this idea that we are a community of missionaries. And my hope is this morning to teach on the idea of community, and then next week to teach on the idea of missionaries. That we are both of these things simultaneously, and what does that truly look like for us in Spokane in 2015. You get the idea. Now, if you've been around New Community for really probably any length of time, you know that community is a uh, subject we teach on quite often. In fact, with College Retreat and everything this weekend, I had seriously thought about pulling out a, a talk on community I did about eight years ago because, let's be honest, none of you would have remembered it. And, um, and just giving it again, right? I probably would have pulled out some great quote like this one, uh, this quote that says, community is important as an integrative motif for theology, not only because it fits with contemporary thinking, but more importantly because it is central to the message of the Bible. The drama of the scriptures speaks of community, right? That, that all of it really speaks to this identity of community, that we are one, Right? And I probably would have gone on and on and said things about community in general, but the more I started to like wrestle with this idea of what truly is community again, I felt like the angle we needed to kind of pursue is the idea of family. I mean, it helps that it's family weekend as well. But the particular angle I want to take that's a little bit different is to look at community through the lens of family. The idea that, that family is central to our understanding of the body of Christ and of community as a whole. 
that if we don't get this idea of family, that we probably don't get the idea of community. That regardless of how community is a buzzword, that if you don't understand it in terms of family, then maybe we've missed the whole point. Hellerman says this, The New Testament church was decidedly a strong group in its social orientation. Jesus unequivocally affirmed such an approach to interpersonal relationships when he chose family as the defining metaphor to describe his followers. He goes on to say, No image for the church occurs more often in the New Testament than the metaphor of family, and no image offers as much promise as family for recapturing the relational integrity of first century Christianity for our churches today. See, this should not be really a new idea. It doesn't take a, a lot of work to, to understand that laced throughout the New Testament is the assumption that you are reading a text that is thoroughly communal. Over and over and over, it derives its focus off of being a community, that the whole Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern culture was about family, family relationships, about community, about a sense of groundedness in family. That that's just a part of it, right? Now you see it all throughout the New Testament. You see it in Paul's letters. So I'll give you a quick little illustration. He uses the terms brothers and sisters 139 times in his letters. Father, 63 times. The idea of being an heir, 19 times. That sons, again, sons and daughters would be 17 times. And that, that we are called children of God, another 39 times. I mean, this is a fairly easy point to make that there is a huge emphasis throughout the scriptures on family. That if you were to understand it, you would understand that it's communal. We even see it in the teachings of Jesus, right? That all throughout his teachings, he like speaks to this idea that you are a family. He speaks to this idea that the things you do, you do together. In fact, even in his most simplest teachings on prayer, being a part of a community is assumed. Cyprian makes this quote. In AD 250, he says, Before all things, the teacher of peace and master of unity did not wish prayer to be offered individually and privately as one would pray only for himself when he prays. We do not say, My Father, who art in heaven, nor give me this day my bread, nor does each one ask that only his debt be forgiven him or that he be led not into temptation and that he be delivered from evil for himself alone. Our prayer is public and common, and when we pray, we pray not for one, but for the whole people, because we, the whole people, are one. See, this idea of family and a communal perspective to life is difficult for us to grasp sometimes, I think, in our culture, but it is so thick in the Scriptures. I think it's difficult for us because, uh, one, there's a, a bit of cultural distance between the times then and the times now. But I also think it's pretty difficult because we swim in an individualistic culture. I mean, we, we're like constantly in it. We know nothing other than it. N.T. Wright said, many people today find it difficult to grasp this sense of corporate Christian identity, this idea of family. We have been so soaked in the individualism of modern Western culture that we feel threatened by the idea of our primary identity being the family we belong to. 
there's this serious, serious disconnect. And I think some of the disconnect is because we have this understanding of what happened in the Bible and then an understanding of where we presently find ourselves. Let me explain a little bit of the difference. The priority in New Testament times would have been solely on the family. The family would always win over the individual. Right? If you had to choose between your own life and your own success and your own desires and that of your family, your family would always win. The priority was that. Okay? To go a little further, the group had priority as well over the individual. So if you were a part of a group, typically those groups hung out as family. If you were a part of that, that received priority in all, everything. Decision making, the future, goals, money, dreams. Everything was family or group oriented and not individual oriented. That is the completely opposite of today's culture, right? Everything, or at least everyone's telling you everything's about you. Period. You get to decide. It's what you want. It's your goals and desires. On top of that, back in ancient Near Eastern times, blood family had priority over the nuclear family. So if like you got married, had a wife, started to have some kids, that was great. That's awesome. That will always lose out to blood family. Blood family always wins. Okay, this is the culture in which the scriptures is written. To, to help you understand it a little bit more, I'll do lesser than or greater than comparisons, okay? To, to explain. Um, if you had to choose between sibling relationships or between your relationship to your spouse, who wins? You would think spouse. New Testament times. Always brothers and sisters. They always win. Right? Meaning, if I had to choose between my wife being happy about a decision I'm about to make and my sister being happy about a decision I'm just about to make, guess who wins? My sister. The last thing I should do is offend my family. The last thing I should ever do is make a decision apart from my family. Some of you are looking and going, what the heck world is this you're talking about? This is the New Testament. Okay, This is the culture in which the Bible's written. It, it, here, here would be another one. If I have to choose between my father and my mother or my kids, right? So I have four kids. If I have to choose between my parents or their grandparents being happy and my kids being happy, our culture today would be like, oh, it's easy. The kids are the future. Kids are tomorrow. Wrong answer, right? It would all be mom and dad. What do mom and dad want? What does the blood family want? I will sacrifice at some level my family for the sake of my blood family, right? To go a little further, family decisions always gain priority over your decisions. You followed in line with what mom and dad wanted. Again, quite different. I mean, to give an example, um, you turn 18 or 20 or for some of us like 25 or whatever, and parents are like, get out, like, right? It, it used to be like you got married or you got a career. It's like, move on in, right? Like that was the way it happened in family, right? So like you got married. It was like, great, we built a shed out back. You're going to stay there, 
you know, and eventually you'll inherit this house, and it'll be awesome. Well, let's all be together. It's a great, big, happy family, right? And now we're like, okay, you can leave now. We're like, our job is to raise you for independence, right? We're like, we, those are the things we talk about, right? Quite a bit different. Uh, if you had to choose your career, the family business always was what you grew up in and what you chose. If your dad was a blacksmith, I don't even know if they exist anymore, but if your dad was a blacksmith, you ended up being a blacksmith, right? There was no like, hey, son, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's like, this is what we've always done. Your grandfather was a farmer. Your great-grandfather was a farmer. You're going to be a farmer, whether you like it or not. It's part of, this is family, right? That was the, the culture that we are in. And so as you, as you can tell, we're miles apart in context. Miles apart. But it's still easy, even in the midst of it, to describe the Bible as being pro-family, right? That it is for the family. So then Jesus comes along. And Jesus says this, Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Luke, he says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is a beautiful Parents Weekend passage, right? Just love it. Like you read that and you're like, what are you, are you kidding me? What is he saying? What does that even mean? And generally, when I start to read these, I go, well, I mean, like, who put that in there? Like, that probably had to get added later or something. Like, he couldn't have said that. But you notice what he says at the end of both of those statements. He says these two lines. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I don't think any of us would doubt that those passages, like we would probably agree with that. I mean, he said it a lot, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. You would go, yeah, that, I could see Jesus saying that. But the thing he said right before it, like, hate your own mother and father, your own children, like, what in the world? That makes no sense. Unless you think Jesus was confused and said some weird things, this is how he responds to his own family. Mark 3. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around them, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. It just gets weirder, right? 
I thought about, just, just for fun, I thought about like, well, that's all for today. Let's, <laughs> let's just discuss that in your small groups. You know, have fun. We'll see where it leads. And the Spirit is with us. But uh, I decided we'd push on. We'd go a little further and maybe try to like go, what, what is he really saying here? What does he really mean? I want to suggest one idea that I think kind of gets at what he's talking about. And it, it's a bit countercultural to the understanding of family. It's con- certainly countercultural to what Jesus was, um, to the culture in which he was speaking. Um, and it, it, re- it really directly opposed their idea of family. Okay? And, and here's the idea family is a choice. Family is a choice. Now, you've probably heard somebody say at some point, uh, you can't choose your family, right? Our culture said, you're born into it. Good luck. You couldn't choose your family. You can choose your friends. We always say that kind of thing, right? But you can't choose your family. Well, I think what Jesus is saying is, actually, you can. You can choose your family. It's a choice, right? It's actually a choice. Now, there's a story told early on in Jesus' ministry where he's, um, he's just starting his public ministry. He's been 30 years just being in a family. And then he gets to this place where it's time, and he starts to, to interact with people. And it says this, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brothers Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You have this story early on where, uh, really, this is a countercultural nature to this call. What he's saying is, hey, who are you hanging out with right now? Your family. What are you doing? Applying the family trade. What are you, a fisherman? Why are you a fisherman? Because your father was a fisherman. What will you be, a fisherman? What will your kids be, a fisherman? Right? And he comes to them at this time, and this is where it's countercultural, and he says, Follow me. And they go, Family's everything. Family, like, like what, what, am I, what am I supposed to do? Right? And it says what they decided to do is to follow him. Right? The essence turn their back on the family plan. In essence, choose his family over their family, right? He's, what he's doing is he's radically calling us to disavow primary loyalty to the one family for an alternative or a new family. Sounds crazy. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his only life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, recent scholarship has done more and more study into this particular section of the text. And oftentimes when we read the word hate, we think like, hate, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a natural assumption, right? Or we think, we usually say things like, well, it kind of means like to love less than, 
right? That's like the way we've always kind of like gotten out of it. Well, I mean, he doesn't mean hate. Jesus wouldn't mean that. He means to love less than him and his things, right? And you go, oh, that makes sense. More and more scholarship has said that really the, the best way to, to define that would be to leave aside or abandon. So if we were to rewrite it, it, w- it would mean this. If anyone comes to me and does not leave aside his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even abandon his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Right? And T. Wright again said this, the only explanation for Jesus' astounding command is that he envisioned loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family, right? That Jesus is basically saying, exchange your loyalty, your highest loyalty, to this new group of people, to this new family, right? Now, for some of you, this probably creates a bit of a disconnect, and it's going to create a disconnect for several reasons. Number one, uh, some of you are like, well, I don't even like my family, so this seems like a good trade, right? (laughs) Like... It works out pretty well, you know? Um, For others of you, you're like, well, man, my family loves Jesus. So this is perfect because, like, I get family and Jesus. I get it all. All right? And that's where some of us that have been privileged to live and grow up in an amazing family that loves the Lord, like, you kind of do. You, You get people who are behind you and advocating for you and saying, yeah, choose Jesus. Like, if it's between... Me and Je- choose Jesus over and over, right? Like that's um, so. There's there's maybe less pressure and angst and like confusion when we read the text for people who are going, yeah. Like my my family lives in Pennsylvania, my sister lives in Ecuador, and I live here. And when I talk to my family, like I miss them deeply and care for them, but they're like, you're supposed to be there, and she's supposed to be there because the priority isn't family as much as it's family, right? This bigger idea, this bigger understanding of family. Probably the easiest way to maybe like draw parallels, a good friend of mine, Imad, he visited from the Middle East not too long ago. And uh, I remember having conversations with Imad about the decisions he was making. He um, was very devout uh, to Islam growing up, that uh, that was a part of his life. He envisioned no other thing. His family was that. And Middle Eastern culture is probably the closest we get to this New Testament understanding. Family's everything, right? You do not ever be disloyal to family. You choose nothing that would be contrary to what the family desires. And then he's introduced to Jesus. And he's trying to figure out, like, what do I do with my life? Who really am I? And he comes to know Jesus in a way that he's never known him before. And he realizes, like, I want to follow the way of Jesus, right? Now, he lived with a a couple other Muslim men in town. And he would be secretly reading his Bible. And they didn't know. Then one day they realized, because they found his Bible. And they're like, what are you doing? Why are you reading this? He kind of hemmed and hawed and, you know, like, kind of like, well, I mean, it was just trying to figure out more, but, you know, it's no big deal or whatever. For the next week, he slept in his car. Because they were like, you're not staying in this house. Unless, like, you're done with that, and then you can come back in. 
right? There were times where, like, he would call home, and they were like, um, hey, I've, I've heard that you're a Christian. And he would be like, well, I mean, who'd you hear that from? And uh, they'd be like, don't talk to us anymore. Like, until you're ready to turn. And that, that would be a picture of what it's like to begin to say, I have to choose a new family, right? But I have to say there's a priority that's bigger. Now, for some of you, that might not connect. And maybe for you, really, it's this, your own individual self, that you have to set aside your dreams, your hopes, your goals, your plans, your comfort, and say, it's actually not about me. It's about this new family, right? Either way, the idea is that there's a choice. And I think the first thing that Jesus is trying to point out is that we're supposed to choose him, to choose Jesus, right? Like that has to be central to all of our stories. At some point, we had to have come to the conclusion that his family and following him is of greater importance than any other thing in life, right? To choose Jesus. Now, that's an all-encompassing choice, meaning that it's a choice that demands all of you and nothing less. It's to abandon your own life for another one, your own family for a new one, your own future for a new one. And it was a decision that I think was equally hard for the new disciples, right? There's this story of uh, the rich young ruler. And uh, his disciples are all hanging around the rich young ruler. And he comes, and you heard it several weeks ago in the story uh, that Kevin was sharing. And uh, they ask, he asks, what, what else do I need to do? And Jesus talks about money, and then he goes away sad. And then all the disciples are like, man... Who can enter into the kingdom of heaven? And he's like, don't worry, with God all things are possible. And they're like, great. And then Peter says this. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. Right Now Peter's saying that because we've left our family business. We've left our family who doesn't believe that you're the Messiah. We, we've, we've left our home. We've left everything for you, right? What, will, what then will we have? Like, what, what is the good in this? Like, is this gonna, how is this going to end up? Because like, I'm getting a little nervous about this decision I made. Getting a little nervous that I went all in on it, right? And Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now what Peter's saying is, okay, Jesus, I've left everything. Is this really a good choice? And, and Jesus says, and it's pretty interesting, he says, don't worry, you'll get a hundredfold, okay? Now I have always thought, okay, a hundredfold, with a hundredfold of what? What are you going to get a hundredfold of, right? And when I have read it probably a hundred times before, I've always assumed that what Jesus is saying is like, whatever stuff you had, you're going to get like a hundred times as much stuff, Okay? Like, you're going to get this, like, sweet mansion that I talk about. There'll be streets of gold, right? Like, all the, the, like, children's church stuff that you hear about. Like, you're going to get a lot of sweet stuff in heaven, so don't worry about it, right? That's what I thought he was saying. But it's interesting, he says, that you're going to get a hundredfold, and pay attention to what he says. He's very specific. You will receive a hundredfold brothers and sisters. You will receive a hundredfold Mothers and children. So like what he's saying is, 
that some of you that have walked away and have chosen to follow Jesus, that what you are gaining is a family. You're gaining a whole new family, a whole new community. Like when Ahmad said, okay, mom and dad, I have to step away, that what he did is he got, when he was a part of this community, he got hundreds and hundreds of brothers and sisters and a few, because we don't have many old people, and a few mothers and fathers, right? But a, a, a whole new family. A whole new family. But that's what he inherited. He inherited children. He inherited... I mean, my, my kids... Uh, I remember Ahmad came over for Thanksgiving to our house and hung out. He loved Thanksgiving, because he never had Thanksgiving before. It's one of our better invented holidays, right? <laughs> and... Um, He's like, this is amazing. And he sat around this table, and there were like interns there, and there were like uh, families from other states that came in to visit their kids. Uh, in college, there were um, our kids. And he sat around the table, and he, he like, we do this thing at Thanksgiving where we, everybody who's sitting at the table, we affirm something amazing about them in their life. And uh, he's sitting there, and this whole table like affirms who he is and the choices he made, and the life he's leading, right? And he's like, Thanksgiving's amazing. Because, why? Because he has a new family. Because he has new brothers and sisters. But here's where I, I think it doesn't stop here, right? So we have all been, if you have made that choice to follow Jesus, you have all been adopted into a new family with brothers and sisters. But then here comes the sticky part. It's the second choice I think we have to make. You actually have to Choose family, right? So after you're already in the family, just like all of us have a choice to actually love our family, like, we have to choose family again and again and again. So like, once you're in the family, I believe that it's a continuous choice to constantly choose family. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. One, to choose to exhibit the qualities that you desire in family. To choose to live into those qualities. So shout out a few. We wrote down qualities at the very beginning of the service. What are things that make family beautiful and happy? And Shout them out. Unconditional acceptance. Supportive. Compassion. Mutual respect. Say that again. Joy. Honesty. Encouragement, love, love. Patience. patience, knowing you belong, safety, safety. Understanding. understanding, any others, forgiveness, forgiveness. Accountability. good, accountability, compassion, say that again, adventure, adventure. excellent, selflessness, I mean, the list goes on and on. Right? You know what else I think you get? I think you get tradition. You have like this history, this lineage in family, right? You get honesty. People who are willing to tell you what you need to hear. I think you get commitment. Like people who don't just bail when the going gets rough. People who are there through thick and thin. I think if we want to live into this idea of the community of God, the family of God, that 
we begin to exhibit some of these very characteristics that family is all about. Second idea would be this. Choose the function as a family. Choose the function as a family. What I mean by that is uh, do what families do. Right? Do what families do. Let me give you a couple examples. Have, have meals together. Like families have meals together. Small groups should have meals together. Groups should invite one another over to each other's house. Why? What does meals together signify? To me, it signifies that you actually spend time together. It doesn't mean that you're always having a potluck. It means you're spending time together, right? That you're in each other's lives. That, that I'm convinced of this. If you are not sensing community there's a part of it that probably comes back to that you're not around them enough, right? That you're not in each other's world. That if you don't feel a part of group, it might be, I'm not always saying it's true, but it might be that you haven't been there in a little while. It might be that just showing up allows you to begin to feel a little, little bit more of life together. So meals together. Here's another one. I think make decisions together. That's what families do. They make decisions together. They don't typically make independent decisions, but they consult one another, right? I've probably told you this before, but uh, when I get asked to speak at different locations, I, I don't make the decision. I submit it to a group of like five to seven people that are invested in my life, and I go, here's the opportunity. This is what it's going to take. This is what it's going to have the impact it will have on my family, my life, the ministry, whatever, your call. And the five of them weigh in, and they say, yeah, we think it seems like the Holy Spirit is saying do it. Then we do it. And if it seems to the family that it isn't, then we don't. Simple as that. We make decisions together. I think we get advice on life and money and kids and homes, and cars, everything. I know some of the kickback is like, well, I'm my own person. Can I make my own decisions? And I would say, you're a part of a family. Right? It's different when you're a part of a family. I think it's different. Shared decisions where you submit to one another. And there's wisdom in relying on others. There's wisdom in going to people and going, help me. Make this decision. I want to make a good one. Here's another one. Raise kids together. Raise kids together. Parent one another's kids. Now, some of you are going, well, I mean, I don't even have a family. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying raise kids together. Which means, I'm I'm looking at Bailey over here. Bailey is helping raise my daughter. She's her young life leader. She's invested in her. Like she took her to homecoming last night. Right? That's right. My daughter looked good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's... You don't have to be married to do that. You know? You don't have to... Raise kids together. There are, there are people in our small group that are so invested in our kids. And likewise, we are trying to be so invested in theirs. And I know from group to group to group that happens. Keep raising families together. Play together. Right? Laugh together. Enjoy one another. Do stuff that families do. 
They go for hikes together. They, they go for runs together. They, they laugh. They play stupid board games and still think they're funny. They're like, all of that, right? That's what family does. But I would also say mourn together, right? Be willing to cry with each other. Let me end with this one. Share life together. A fellow pastor in town a while back, I asked him, what, what is community? And this is what he wrote. We eat, we drink, we get mixed up in each other's lives. We tell our stories. We find ourselves in God's story. We seek out ways to live our values together. We love, we argue, we mess up, we forgive. We live as followers of Jesus in a world that longs for good news. We notice our neighbors. We give ourselves away. We are not content with things as they are. We break down distinctions. We serve. We share gifts. We participate in what God is up to in the world because we are the family of Christ. Let's pray. God, you have come to create a new family, a family that usurps all other family ties, a family that usurps all other loyalties, one that, uh, that we devote all of ourselves to, uh, with you at the center of it, that you are our Father, and that you, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has engrafted us or adopted us into the family of God. That we, we can honestly say we are sons and daughters of the Most High. And God, this, this picture of family is one that you want to spill over into and to trickle into everything we do. That we live life together and we love and we eat and we laugh and we mourn. And all of those things we do as a body, as a family. God, I'm convinced that one of the, the most uh, significant ways that we can demonstrate what it means to be a follower of Jesus to the world around us is for them to see a family that loves one another and to desire so badly to be included in that family. God, may our very lives be a reflection of that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.